Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. On October 28, 2016, I had a conversation with David Vanderhoof and Max Flight from the UAV Digest podcast. As many of you know, in late August 2016, the FAA implemented a set of regulations called Part 107, which did two things. It greatly expanded the range of operations that commercial drone operators could do without getting prior FAA approval, and it also formalized the process for individuals to obtain a commercial drone license a license which allows the holder of that certificate to operate small unmanned aerial vehicles that weigh less than 55 pounds, or 25 kilograms. After hearing the following interview, you may want to visit drones.airsafe.com, where the drone-related information on airsafe.com is concentrated. You're listening to episode 168 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight in Hartford, Connecticut. And I'm David Vanderhoof in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hey, Max, how are we? Doing well, David. Doing very well. We have a guest with us this episode. Yay! It's nice that we don't have when we don't have to do the work. <laughs> well, uh, joining us is Dr. Todd Curtis. He's an aviation safety analyst, an author, and a publisher. He founded AirSafe.com way back in 1996. He provides the public with useful information about airline safety, fear of flying, plane crashes, TSA security other issues of concern to the traveling public, and also now drones. Uh, he was an airline safety engineer at Boeing, and you've probably seen him on the television because he's a frequent on-air aviation expert on CNN, CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, Fox News, well, just about every place, BBC, NPR, many other uh, major news outlets. So, Todd, welcome to the UAV Digest. Well, uh, thanks for having me. My first time here on the UAV Digest. I hope this is going to be fun for all of us. It sure will be. I'm uh, I'm confident of that. We've we've had Todd on uh, Airplane Geeks uh, once or twice, maybe well a couple of times a couple anyway. Times. Yeah, so we're uh, glad to to have someone with uh, Todd's knowledge of aviation safety come to talk with us about well safety of drones. So, uh, what do you say, David? We get started. Uh, I think we should. So let's roll. Bum, 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 bum. Are you taking this or am I? Todd, let's start off with uh, the question of looking at any safety parallels between manned aviation and unmanned aviation. Are, are there any kind of common threads across both of those? I say, uh, of course, I'm somewhat prejudiced given my safety background, especially in the area of, of aviation risk assessment and risk management. The biggest parallel I see is the need to manage risk of a complex system, because in spite of the small size of many of these drones, for example, I have a DJI uh, Phantom 3 standard, which is uh, the low end of their Phantom series, but it's a fairly sophisticated aircraft. Uh, multiple engines. It has GPS uh, navigation. It has a flight control system. There's a checklist that I had to put together to manage the flight so I don't wreck the darn thing. And that sort of methodical thinking and detail-oriented thinking is very much a parallel between traditional aviation and now sophisticated drone aviation. Well, it is interesting that manned aviation or traditional aviation has such a long history of uh, incorporating a safety culture uh, into the systems. And uh, now we have something that we call drones that kind of appeared 
in some ways from the grassroots, or at least in terms of uh, the quantity and the volume of uh, people flying drones out there. And they're not accustomed to that kind of a rigorous safety system. Absolutely not. And before the end of August, I didn't give it that much thought, literally, because although there were sophisticated drones out there and people doing things with them, sometimes foolishly, I didn't see this as a phenomenon that would uh, be widespread. That is, would there be hundreds of thousands of people very seriously using drones for work and other reasons in a somewhat uh, controlled environment? And then, again, I hadn't really been keeping up on this until late August. I heard about Part 107 being approved and going into effect at the end of August. When I read the requirements for becoming a commercial drone pilot, what struck me was that you could literally have zero experience in aviation, zero experience flying anything, including a drone. You can sit down and take a, a test and come out with a commercial drone license, which gives you far broader abilities to fly commercially than you ever did before the Part 107 came into effect. And by the FAA's own estimates uh, from one of the documents from FAA headquarters, they were estimating between 400,000 and 2 point, I think it was 2.3 million new commercial drone registrations would be out there by 2020. Now, I'm, I'm a data geek, so I looked at the stats for how many Traditional pilots are there. How many people have an active private, commercial, airline transport, etc. in the United States? And I believe in 2015 it was roughly half a million. And again, I'm no math whiz, but I'm thinking, good golly. Potentially you could grow the number of certificated pilots by a factor of four or five within three or four years. And I'm willing to bet most of those new, newly minted commercial drone pilots will have no background in aviation, no exposure to the culture of aviation, no exposure to the society that you and I and everyone, basically everyone listening to this podcast, has been a part of, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. Mm. So that represents, well, uh, quite a risk, I would say, to, to safety. Is there any way that that can be mitigated that, uh, that you can think of, or are we kind of stuck with it? Well, I think it's a risk, but I think it's also a, a big, huge opportunity. And I, again, the thing that comes to mind is something that happened last year at the International Drone Day. I happened to visit Vaughn College uh, within sight of LaGuardia. In fact, at Vaughn College, I think they can look out their windows and see all the lights of uh, uh, Vice Presidential Candidate uh, Pence's plane, which went off the runway the night that we're recording this. I went there for International Drone Day. And one of the things that they did is they had a lot of kids from the local community in a how-to-build-a-drone class. These are like 9- to 13-year-olds, no previous exposure to aviation. And some of the students there were demonstrating how they build drones from scratch. They had so many young people crowding into that classroom. They had to go out there, buy more materials, bring it back to the classroom to satisfy the demand. There was a level of excitement I saw in these young people's eyes, which I have seen rarely in any other part of aviation. And I, I, I said to myself, this is something that could get these people into thinking about aviation as a career. And point of fact, uh, having gone through this myself, between getting the license to register your drone, which has to be registered if it's over half a pound, that was $5. I took the commercial drone test, that was $150. I purchased a fairly sophisticated drone for $500. For well under $1,000, you can have all the elements that you need to start a commercial drone career. 
and you can get a commercial drone license as young as the age eight, as young as age eight, uh, sixteen, I think it is. So this is a level of uh, a hurdle much smaller than the hurdle it would take to become a commercial pilot, or for that matter, a private pilot. Thousands of dollars less. It can be done in a much shorter amount of time. And there is a burgeoning community of organizations, companies, individuals, meetup groups, etc., that are around this general subject of flying these kinds of aircraft. So I think, although there's a safety aspect to this, it's a much bigger opportunity for the aviation community to bring in a much larger audience and perhaps uh, bring excitement to other parts of aviation. You know what it reminds me of, Todd, is uh, back uh, during the days of the uh, the U.S. manned space program. Uh, and I'm thinking about the manned, manned flight to Mars, to Mars, uh, manned landing on the moon, uh, you know, all of that kind of thing. And that really inspired a whole generation, I think, of of kids, of young people to get interested in aerospace uh, and many of them went on to careers in aviation or space or, and that kind of thing. It's almost like the same thing happening again, although it's, you know, the impetus is not a, a national space program. It's just the availability of this technology, at, you know, as you say, at low barrier to entry. And this is something that has elements of both the space program, classic space program of the 60s and 70s, which inspired me for sure, and also of the Internet startup culture and the Internet uh, business culture of the last 20 years. And certainly I see some of the same madness of companies uh, coming out of nowhere saying, hey, we have this great idea to build a business around drones. Here's our app or here's our company or here are, here's our drone pilots. Let's get down to business. And I think that much like with the Internet uh, startups of this year or 20 years ago or any time in between, most of them will fail spectacularly. Even some yes. of the ones that succeed may not have a business model that is successful in the long run. And I'm thinking specifically of a MySpace versus a Facebook. They were both social networking websites, but obviously MySpace is an historical footnote, and Facebook is one of the biggest companies in the mm -hmm. United States. And I can okay. see that happening when it comes to commercial drones as well. Well, are there any other uh, lessons that we can take from the manned aviation world? The biggest lesson, again, is the fact that there is a larger world when you're dealing with aviation. Again, there are hundreds of thousands of pilots, hundreds of thousands of other people who are mechanics and such, air traffic controllers, designers, businesses uh, involved in this. But if, like you, you've ever spent time uh, flying, either uh, flying your own plane or flying with someone else, it could seem to be a big empty sky out there and you're the only person out there and you seem to have the world to yourself. In a sense, emotionally that's true, but at the same time, there is a layered reality of a whole worldwide network of people, organizations, rules, and regulations that you're part of. And of course, in the beginning of one's aviation career, whether you're an engineer or a mechanic or what, ha what have you, your focus is much narrow. As you spend more time in that community, your focus broadens. You have a better understanding of what's out there. So again, uh, getting back to the aspect of this is a whole new population that could be brought into our community. I think it's incumbent upon us who are in the community to figure out ways of bringing people in and getting them used to the fact that it's not just them and their drone. There's mm -hmm. other stuff going on here, and I don't just mean the regulations. I mean the broader 
world of technology and aviation. What is your part going to be in it? How are you going to contribute to it? And how do you keep out of other people's way so that they can contribute to it? Well, when we think about the impact of drones, of unmanned aircraft on unmanned aviation, I think people tend to think of drones crashing into airliners. Is that the the, the major safety impact when we uh, look at uh, how are drones affecting manned aviation? Well, it's hard to say because drones will rapidly evolve much as the internet and computer technology rapidly evolve. Uh, and again, without uh, going too far away from your original question, let's take, for instance, the current FAA regulation for Part 107. You have to uh, go through certain hoops to fly a drone between a half pound and 20, excuse me, uh, it's a half pound, yes, 0.55 pounds or 250 um, grams to 25 kilograms or 55 pounds. And there's a lot that can be done in something that size range. And I got to ask you, how long would it be before the Phantom that you buy off the shelf now that's maybe three or four pounds, you can do all that and more in a package that's under half a pound. So I think you'll see miniaturization of, uh, of, of drone aircraft such that, yes, there will still be issues with drones crashing into airplanes, but it's very likely that drones will get smaller, less of a hazard to aircraft as time goes on. That said, uh, right now we have a situation where most of the drones that are being sold out there are going to be flying so low and so far away from other aircraft that even if somebody deliberately wanted to run a drone into another aircraft, a Cessna or a 757 or what have you, it will be difficult to do it deliberately and very rare if it were to happen accidentally. Hmm. And we don't have a lot of data regarding the uh, the damage that a drone could do to a uh, an air, another airplane. Uh, we, we've seen a little bit of uh, activity in terms of starting to get some data on that, but by and large, we really haven't explored that, have we? Oh, that's correct. We, not when it comes to uh, small technological objects like drones hitting aircraft. Of course, there's a very long history and very complex history of testing aircraft for bird strikes. And although there is some useful data that could be transferred over from the bird strike world, again, you're dealing with a different kettle of fish. You're dealing with something that's made of metal, plastic, composites, etc., hitting an aircraft or being sucked into an engine. That would have fundamentally different effects than a flesh and feather a bird going into an engine. And I think it would be reasonable at some point for the FAA, ICAO, and others to sit down and reason together and come up with a set of standards for testing, especially larger commercial aircraft, against the effects of common-sized drones. And to certify aircraft to be able to continue safe flight and landing should they have a head-on collision, either in the fuselage, the engine, the, the tail section, etc., with a common-sized drone. How about new safety challenges that unmanned aviation pose that are unique or, or different from the case with manned aviation? I think uh, one of the, the things that will come on the horizon that's similar to manned aviation, but different in that the adoption of it in manned aviation will be a whole lot slower, is autonomous flight, beyond visual line of flight, uh, beyond visual um, line of sight flight, etc. Uh, the capability exists now with the drone that I have is I could take it up into the sky, lay in a few waypoints, and have it run a track over and over again while I focus on taking pictures. And the aircraft will fly in a semi-autonomous uh, way until I call it in for a landing. 
And that technology or that capability will only get more sophisticated and cheaper as time goes by. And I predict, much like with large parts of the Internet, the technological capability of drones will far outstrip the regulatory uh, knowledge about how to deal with that technology. And you will have, in short order, drones that could stay aloft for several hours, that can fly autonomously, and can do so at altitudes far higher than 400 feet. So, in a sense, that problem is the same as autonomous flight with a traditional aircraft, but it'll come on a whole lot quicker because instead of having a few thousand aircraft potentially having this capability, you'll have a few million much smaller aircraft with this capability. Um, why don't we Why don't we to touch a little bit on the news? Um, we talked about regulation, and one of the biggest news stories this week came out from, and this was from the BBC, that Sweden banned cameras on drones. What, what do you think about that, Todd? Well, that speaks to a broader issue that's well beyond Sweden. That is, what is the level of privacy that one can expect? Now, I'm no expert on Swedish law, and I can't speak to that, but I do know in the United States there's a long and uh, evolved history with what are the limits of privacy and what are the limits of freedom when it comes to taking photographs. And when it comes to drone. Drones, that's something that's being worked on as we speak. Uh, for example, I live in a town, uh, in fact, Brookline, Massachusetts is where I live, and one of the more famous people who live here is the quarterback Tom Brady of the New England Patriots. And I'm sure there's going to be more than a few people who would love to have a photograph of Tom Brady's mansion, <laughs> he and his supermodel wife, outside sunbathing, whatever the case may be. So you say to yourself, well, gee, don't they have some privacy to keep that from happening? Well, yes and no. Obviously, if you go to Google Earth or Google Maps, what have you, you can get the Google photographs of that area, including his house. If you're flying 10 feet above his roof, I think it's well established. I know, lawyer, I think it's well established that that would be an invasion of privacy. But it's unclear how low you can go before it becomes an invasion of privacy. Now, if you take off your drone from a public road, fly it, let's say, 200 feet above a house and fly it back to the public road, are you well within both federal and local law when it comes to that? Do you have that freedom? And I, I'm assuming that there will be a lot of discussions about this, probably more than a few lawsuits. But I think what happened in Sweden is just a reflection of what people around the world would feel as a, a technology that would have to be reined in, at least legally, with respect to what rights does one have when it comes to flying your own personal aircraft? But is that a we've had this discussion before, Max and I, as well, um, that the problem with regulating privacy is there are privacy laws on the books and you don't necessarily you shouldn't need to make a drone privacy law when you've got privacy laws on the books. Uh, it sort of sounds, Todd, like you're sort of disagreeing with that, that there needs to be some sort of specific privacy regulations involving UAVs? I don't think it has to be specific to UAVs. I think there's a combination of things that will make the current privacy laws problematic. Uh, for instance, right now my drone has a nice camera on it, but if I'm 100 feet away, I really can't see that much. What if I have a uh, same price, but three years from now, much more sophisticated drone with a zoom lens that has the effective uh, distance of 10 feet away, even though I'm 200 feet away from it. So yes, under the current rules, I might be in a space where I have the right to take a picture, but my technology has advanced to the point that I can have a very, very detailed close-up picture of someone 
even from 200 feet away with a drone. Even though there might be laws in the books, even though there might be an understanding of what you can and can't do, the day after you have some fill-in-the-blank tabloid with a picture of some Hollywood starlet from 500 feet away that looks like you're standing three feet away from them, there will be a hue and cry all over the place to put rules in place. David, do we have some other uh, news stories that we might like to touch on? Well, one that I sort of was interested on, and this is uh, more along the lines of a a business situation, which is, um, this was from defenseworld.net. We had talked about, was it last week or two weeks ago, Max, about the Obama administration coming out with a declaration of exporting militarized um, UAVs. And in this case, um, one of the countries has decided not to sign on to it, and that is probably the U.S.'s number one competitor when it comes to UAVs, Israel. Right. Israel says they're not going to sign because uh, they believe it would damage their their exports uh, or or limit them uh, somehow. Uh, it's, it's an interesting issue, and, I mean, there's no uh, legally – and there's no legal requirement that countries sign this. I mean, it's a you know it's a voluntary kind of a thing. Um, and the countries like Israel that think that they may be threatened economically uh, by limiting themselves in this regard, uh, they're they're going to be reluctant to sign. So it, it's an interesting. We'll, we'll we'll keep following on to see if there's any other repercussions like this. Um, but. Let's go back to a little bit of safety. How about terrorizing public with a drone-mounted angel of death? Todd, did you get to look at this story? <laughs> well, I didn't look at that story, unfortunately, but uh, the whole issue of uh, militarizing fill-in-the-blank technology and being used by terrorists, uh, as with just about any other technological innovation, the ca capability, evil or good, that can come out of a technology is limited only by human imagination. And we've seen legions of examples over the decades of what can be done from using a telephone to arrange a bank robbery to flying drugs with a drone into a prison to, of course, 9-11, taking airliners and flying them into buildings. So, yes, the potential is there. And I believe that the things that can be done with them haven't been thought of yet, that there will be some opportunities that aren't quite clear yet but will be made clear by some evildoer who is also creative. So to say that uh, there should be limits to the technology simply because it can be used for evil, well, anything can be used for evil. I don't want to be too cavalier about that, but unless there is a real and present capability in a drone that can easily be used for evil, it's not something I think one should worry about. Uh, certainly, um, one of the other issues I'd like to touch base with, getting back to the International Accords for Militarization of Drones, Unlike traditional aviation, where you needed significant industrial capacity to build a capable aircraft, it's feasible that within a few years, if not already, that you could essentially cobble together a drone from off-the-shelf parts, online plans, 3D printing, etc., and build fairly sophisticated uh, drones that are outside the normal industrial processing channels, and that the whole idea of we can have laws and export controls and whatnot, might fall to the wayside if the information to build drones is coursing around the universe 
in uh, informational uh, form rather than physical form. So again, I don't think we, that that situation has arrived yet. And luckily, with 3D printing, making a drone is a whole lot easier than making a nuclear bomb. So uh, we'll have to worry about one part of an evil technology. Let's say the transportation device, the drone. But in order for that to be a threat, the other parts of the evil have to be brought together too. I don't think anybody has 3D printed a surface-to-air missile or a bomber or a submarine or anything of that nature. So I'm not too worried about the terroristic use of drones just yet. Well, one area where we're seeing a lot of interest, of course, is package delivery, delivery by by drone. We see a sort of land-based version of that uh, from CNN. Uh, self-driving truck makes first shipment five, uh, 50,000 cans of, of beer. And uh, this was being called the first commercial shipment by a self-driving vehicle. Now, this is on the, on the highway in Colorado rather than in the air, but similar technologies. And in this case, Budweiser teamed up with uh, Auto, which is an autonomous vehicle company that actually was just purchased recently by Uber. Um, but uh, package delivery in general, I mean, this uh, this represents kind of a high volume sort of usage uh, of, of drones or autonomous vehicles of any sort, I guess, um, through areas that I, I would think would be fairly populated. I mean, this isn't like agricultural drones or something. Uh, th- this might be an area that really requires some special attention, do you think, in terms of uh, keeping that safe? It will uh, require special attention. I think the knowledge that's necessary to make it safe and reliable, and bottom line, better than current capabilities that we have right now, would take a lot of practice and probably a lot of useful, uh, a lot of um, usage in areas that are low population, uh, distant from infrastructure, or special use areas that could be highly, highly advantageous to use a drone as opposed to people. For example, supplying offshore oil platforms. Um, I think it's a a heck of a good idea if you can have autonomously uh, flown helicopters resupplying supplies out to the oil platforms and not risking lives. And again, there are other issues where you can say to yourself, where are aircraft with people being used right now where the people can be replaced and end up with a better result. One example I've I've given recently is uh, what happened with Katrina back in 2005. Obviously, the Coast Guard and military and and all kinds of air assets were brought to bear on that situation, and they did a splendid job, and I had nothing but good things to say about that. But what if you had Uh the technology we have now to couple traditional helicopter rescue and life-saving with drones that can go out there and do a quick surveillance of what's going on so you can come back with that information and put the air assets where it can be most useful right then and there. So I don't see it completely replacing uh, helicopters and other aircraft as much as I see it complementing what's already there and enhancing the uh, benefit. Uh, what else, David? Want to do uh, another story? Which one? Um, oh, my Baywatch story. I got to do my Baywatch story. Well, this one caught my eye, and and everybody liked my tweet when I said this one doesn't occur in slow motion, which is Baywatch-inspired drone, and this was Yanko Design. Um, 
it's a the amphibious joint lifeguard, which is a drone that is kind of shaped like um, if you remember watching Baywatch, the orange um, life preserve life um, buoys that they had. So it flies out to the victim. The victim climbs aboard it, and then it acts as a self-propelled um, sled back to bring the bring the victim back to the beach. I like this idea. <laughs> now, this is just a concept at this point, I, I think. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, drawings. There's a lot of ifs. But there's a lot of ifs there, but uh, it's another example of uh, you know a useful uh, uh, application for a, a, a drone. Uh, what, one of the illustrations shows one of these things kind of stationed on a uh, post on the beach, just ready to be deployed as needed for uh, someone in need of assistance out in the water. Um, I don't know if uh, you could uh, build a, a flying device like that that could get out there and actually have enough power to uh, to bring the the poor victim back to the shore. But it's it is a great idea. And this is illustrating what I was saying a minute or two ago that. Rather than having drones replacing humans or replacing current technology, can you use it in a creative way to supplant or to, to supplement what's already out there and mm. to make what you have more effective? And about this, uh, one other thing about this uh, Baywatch-inspired drone and the article that went along with it, I was sorely disappointed because I'm an old-school Baywatch kind of guy, and I'm expecting Pamela Anderson-type Anderson <laughs> pictures, and there were simply none here. Oh, you were disappointed, huh? Quiet. Okay. <laughs> well, on, uh, on on that note, I guess, uh, maybe, we, Todd, you should tell our listeners about some of the resources, the drone-related resources, uh, especially, that are out now on airsafe.com. Well, as I've done for a number of years, one of the things I do with airsafe.com is provide very basic information about issues of, of concern to airline passengers and other people in the aviation industry. And one issue I had when I was deciding whether or not I should go ahead and take the commercial drone test and whatnot, is I had very little idea of things like the basic vocabulary of, of the drone industry and of the FAA's regulations about that. I had very little understanding of what's a drone, what are the things I should look for, how should I pick one out, and I don't pretend to answer all those questions. But the kind of things that someone who is a neophyte, who's a total novice on this, would ask is the kind of thing I added at first to airsafe.com, which is easily available at drones.airsafe.com. It's not very fancy. I, don't even th I think I don't even have any videos or anything. It was mostly textual information. One of the things that really struck me is drones, most of them, including mine, are powered by lithium-ion type batteries. Mm. There are actually very specific rules and restrictions when it comes to carrying these on airliners. So that aspect of it dovetailed directly into what I've been doing at airsafe.com for a long time, that is providing useful information to passengers. So if you're going to fly with your drone as either carry-on or checked baggage, hint, carry-on baggage is, is better, in part because if it's in checked baggage, it gets damaged, you might not get any compensation from the airline. They'll treat that like an expensive item like a computer. If it gets damaged in checked baggage, no compensation. But if it's in carry-on baggage... They still won't compensate you, but at least you can keep your eyes on it. Mm. And again, getting back to rechargeable batteries, there are a lot of rules about what you should do, and airlines haven't done a good job of explaining those rules to passengers. So one of the things I did is I laid it out in plain English. 
Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. You can only carry rechargeable batteries in yeah, loose batteries in carry-ons. This, this is a subtle point. I think I should point this out. The FAA came out with some guidance a while back about rechargeable batteries. And to make a long story short, they said, if it is installed in a device, you can keep it in check luggage. If it's not installed in, an in a device, it must be in carry-ons. You can carry no more than two at any given time. And they have to be under a certain uh, power level or else they won't even let it on or above 100 watt hours, the airlines might restrict you. And above 160 watt hours, it's not allowed at all on an airplane. Yeah, I can imagine that the, the flying public is largely unaware of the requirements. And I, I might also guess that the enforcement of, of those requirements might be, well, maybe a little bit thin. Uh, thin and <clears throat> completely lacking in some cases. I had a flight attendant uh, for one of the major airlines in the U.S. call me uh, a couple of weeks ago, explain in detail that she understood the rules, and she saw a passenger bringing a bunch of these rechargeables on board. She told her, her captain, hey, this isn't allowed. This person can't have six of these batteries in the, inside the cabin. The captain was unaware of the rules, and he was going to wow. let it slide. So the educational component has to happen not just with the drone owners, not even just with the uh, flight attendants, but with the pilots as well of, of these airliners. So again, uh, this gets back to one of the things I come back to it again and again. Uh, keeping bad things from happening when it comes to drones will likely take a combination of education, regulation, and incarceration, with the biggest component being education, in that there are a lot of things, some of them really, really basic, that even people who are highly in, uh, motivated about learning like myself, I'm finding this to be completely brand new. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that. Mm. So that definitely has to be there. The regulation part is evolving. As I spoke earlier, I think it was before we started the official broadcast, the FAA has very strict rules about where you can fly a drone. And basically within five miles of most airports, five miles of many heliports, which means in most metropolitan areas in the United States, you legally cannot fly a drone even one inch off the ground because you're within those zones. The FAA realizes this is ridiculous. They're in the process of changing those regulations to allow people to draw, uh, fly within less restrictive um, situations. But between now and then, you will have hundreds of thousands of people across the country who either unknowingly are violating the regulations or knowingly violating the regulations because it makes no sense to follow those regulations. Now, I believe, uh, Max, you said you live within a half mile of uh, Philadelphia Airport. Uh, Good. David does. David, that, I'm sorry. That would be me, but... And let me ask you this. Have you seen anybody within a half mile of where you live flying a drone? Absolutely. And uh, were they flying it in a reckless manner or just an unknowing manner? Uh, well, you can't... Unfortunately, it was... They didn't know any better. We have a very large... Um, within a couple of blocks of my house, we have a very large open park with um, a bunch of soccer fields um, and some baseball fields. It's a perfect way to learn to fly a radio-controlled airplane or a drone. And it, unfortunately, it's only a mile and a half away from Philadelphia International Airport, which is it's against the law. But that person didn't know that. And, and in all fairness, they were flying it about 100 feet off the ground. It's not... 
but they didn't know that they were breaking the law because it's like Max and I have always said that you either stupid and then there's not knowing. And in this case, this person didn't know any better. He could, he got it out of the box, took it out of the box and went flying with it. And I think that most people in the FAA, even those who are going to be enforcing the regulations realizes that this is not an issue in the sense of if you're unknowingly flying it, you're 200 feet off the deck, you're 4.9 miles away from the airport, and there's no air traffic anywhere near you. Yes, they realize that. But here's the problem that might happen. Even for those people who are unwittingly doing this or unknowingly doing this, let's say you have an accident. Let's say your drone accidentally hits someone, causes a serious injury. And by the regulations that are out there right now, that injury has to be reported through official channels through the FAA or the NTSB or what have you. Well, again, if a government agent is doing his or her job, they'll say, okay, here's an accident. Let me investigate this. Where did it happen? Oh, it was less than five miles from an airport. Did this person have permission to fly this drone within five miles of the airport? No, they didn't. Well, even though it was an honest mistake on your part, someone got hurt, you violated the federal regulation, there will be a sanction of some kind. Not incarceration, but some kind of sanction. Mm. And as unfair it may seem, because this was just one of those things, the fact is, most people in the United States who are flying drones are, by the very act of flying, already potentially violating a federal regulation that can get them into a heap of trouble. It doesn't have to be that way, because realistically, the risk that most people are putting the public in by flying a drone in an empty park 4.9 miles away from an airport, the risk is virtually zero. And in enforcing those kinds of regulations and putting a sanction on people who do those sorts of things, when again, it's one of these accidental things, it's not going to help the situation. It will make people who want to honestly work with the system less inclined to work with the system. And it may, unfortunately, especially if it's a high-profile accident, it may lead to very onerous regulations that will further restrict far beyond what Part 107 does right now. And will put us in a situation where, yes, the rules are in place, but the technology is in place too. And do you want to have an entire society of lawbreakers, much like the current drug policy is with the United States, where it takes decades before some states finally say, you know what, it might still be against the federal law, but we're going to change the state law to make it a little bit more free as far as uh, engaging this particular activity. I hate to conflate drones with marijuana, but again, <laughs> I, I live in Washington State. We went through this a few years ago with yes, changing yes. the rules. And although it's not perfect, it's not ideal, uh, there is a, you know, an uncomfortable relationship between the feds who still outlaw it and the state that allows it. This is a model I don't want drones to follow. I believe the regulations and the laws should be such that the people who are willing to work at this do it honestly and yeah, expand aviation, be allowed to do so without too many encumbrances. Yeah, the benefits uh, are just so great, and it would be quite a shame if we were unable to enjoy many of them because of the actions of, of a few or you know these kinds of uh, scenarios. So. Well, uh, with that, I think we need to uh, draw this episode to a close. We want to thank uh, Todd Curtis for joining us as guest, airsafe.com. Thanks again, Todd. Oh, thanks for having me. And you can find us, of course, at the uavdigest.com. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, you'll find those at the uavdigest.com slash 168. 
And of course, you can find us on Twitter at UAV Digest, on Facebook at facebook.com slash the UAV Digest. Um, you can email us at feedback at the UAV Digest.com. And of course, you know, we want to see your videos, we want to hear your stories, and send, and we also want you to become part of our community, our Slack listener team. Um, you can find us by sending us an email to feedback at the UAV Digest.com. Or you can go to the website, which is theuavdigest.com slash team. We have a lot of active things and really some really good discussions recently um, beyond just learning to fly and technology. So definitely join us there. With that, I'm going to say this is David in Philly. And Max in Hartford. Thanks for listening. For more information about drone issues, please visit drones.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.